0: Our scripture reading this morning, John 17, is such a remarkable text. Here we have recorded in scripture the longest recorded prayer from our Lord that unveils some remarkable things. The author of Hebrews tells us that our Savior, our great high priest, lives perpetually in order to make intercession for us. And so when we read John 17, we are, in a sense, learning about how he prays for us. And there are so many rich truths in that text. He he prays for our joy. That we would have the fullness of his joy in ourselves. He prays that we would be kept from the evil one. He prays that we would be sanctified in truth. And he prays for the church universal. Praying for us. Those who came to faith through the word preached and proclaimed by the eleven disciples. He prayed for the unity of his people. And he prayed that we would be there someday in his eternal kingdom. All these truths are overwhelming. They're wonderful. They're rich. And they're all dear and precious to the child of God. In fact, they ought to bring to our hearts inexpressible joy and humility as we consider them. But mark this antecedent to these truths, to these prayers, there is a remarkable petition that our Savior begins with in this prayer that is worthy of our time and attention and consideration. And I would like for you to look at verse 1 in John chapter 17. Very simply put, our Savior prayed before he prayed for all these other matters before his people, for his sheep. He prayed this Father, the hour has come, glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. Now, this is very simple, but it is so foundational to everything because. His first priority in this remarkable prayer is the glory of the Godhead. That he would be glorified, that the Father would be glorified. I believe that one of the reasons why the Reformers comprehended the principle of the five solas as we refer to them, which is simply a summation of what they sought to restore in the preaching, faithful preaching of the scriptures. And that is, is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based upon the authority of the scriptures alone. And then the very tail end of all this is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone and it's not last on the list because it's the least important it's i think last in the list because it is utterly foundational to everything why have we been saved by grace through faith by Christ and by the authority of scripture is it is so that god would be glorified By the way, I'm not telling you this because I imagine that I'm telling you something that you don't know. I know you know these things. But I believe that this principle is something that we need to rehearse and review time and again because I'm amazed, and I'm speaking now for myself as a self-rebuke, I'm amazed at how easy it is to wander away from some of the most basic principles of Scripture It's just too easy. That's why we need the constant infusion of Scripture to anchor our hearts, our souls, our minds. Frankly speaking, this priority of God's glory saturates every page of Holy Writ. In fact, again, Psalm 46 and verse 10, the part that I didn't get into last time, The Lord commands us, see striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The idea of the word exalt means to lift lift up, herald, and glorify. God promises to achieve this. Which means he will. Because as the author of Hebrews reminds us, it is impossible for God. To lie. Not only does God seek the priority of His glory, His exaltation, but the scriptures make it quite clear that He jealously guards this priority. And I can only say this using the word jealousy because th- this is exactly what we find. In Scripture, we see the description description of in Scripture of God's jealousy, his zeal for his own glory. Now stop there for a moment. I don't know how often you consider the concept of God being jealous for his glory. And again, I'm not raising that question in doubt, but I'm just wondering, that how often do you think that? I, I, I'll confess it again. I don't know that I think of it as often as I should. But it is crucial that we understand that God is, in fact, jealous for his glory. And as soon as they use the word jealous, I think there's a little bit of a complex moment that we have in our brains because when we think about jealousy, human jealousy is very different from God's jealousy. Why? Because we're fraught with sin and corruption. And so our jealousy usually is just something that is a selfish, covetous kind of a thing. And even though there is such a thing as righteous jealousy among men, but oftentimes when men are jealous, we tend to think of and see really exhibitions of sinfulness and rage and all kinds of things. When I was a young, young guy, I had this crush on this girl, and I only remember her name because my sister tormented me. Uh, the moment I told her that I was in love with Debbie Daniels, by the way, Debbie Daniels did not know who I was, did not care. If there was ever a case of unrequited love, this was one of them, and. I mean, it was the blonde hair, blue eyes, and those blue horn-rimmed glasses that just captivated my heart. And I remember one day, we were all walking into classroom, and um, there was a young guy who was just like the nemesis and troublemaker in the entire class, and he liked to pick on Debbie. And again, even though she didn't know me, as we were walking in, into the classroom, he started to pick on her and say things that made her upset. And as soon as she walked passed me into the classroom. I waited a moment, and I slugged the guy in the gut. Now, what is that? That's not righteous indignation or jealousy. That's just rage, and I didn't know what else to think, say, or do, and I can guarantee you I got in a heap of trouble because this teacher was standing right there. I wasn't thinking, but I just resorted to this moment of rage, Human jealousy often produces this kind of mindlessness. And so we have to be careful when we talk about the jealousy of God. We're not talking about mindless rage, of course. In fact, whenever we go to Scripture and we find expressions that are descriptive of God, like the eyes of God or the arm of God or the right hand of God, these are what we call anthropomorphisms. They're uh, descriptors of God and his attributes that are put in human terms and language to help us to think about God himself. In terms like love and joy and anger and even jealousy, these we call anthropopathisms because the Greek word pathos, passion, these tell us something about God in his attitude towards a variety of things. God loves us, and we're thankful for that. But the love that he has for us is something that is entirely alien to what we know in a natural sense of love. This is why we need to go to scripture to ground our thinking of what love is. So when people run around and say love is love, they're saying absolutely nothing. And they're basically letting you know that they don't really have a definition for love. That's why we have the opportunity and privilege to tell them about real love. But we also have the privilege to tell them about jealousy the jealousy of God. I believe that this discussion warrants significant time and attention, and I'm going to apologize to you in advance that I'm only going to cover this for two Sundays. But this priority of the glory of God and the fact that God is jealous for his glory such that he will not share it with another... I believe is a a thought and a consideration that serves as an anchor for the child of God, an anchor to our souls. And so in view of this, this morning I'd like to cover the following points to introduce this subject. Three points I'm going to lay out here that we'll cover. And the first one is this, as we consider the jealousy of God. The first one is this. Number one, God identifies himself by name as a jealous God. Why would I even be talking about this subject if it were not for the case that God himself identifies himself in this way? I'm not making anything up when I say God is a jealous God. He says he is. And he even says that that is his name. We'll get to that in just a moment. The second thing I'd like for us to consider here this morning is this. It is how God has demonstrated his jealousy over his glory throughout history. This is another rich subject that could warrant a great deal more time and attention than we will have this morning. But we ought to consider how scripture repeatedly showcases for us how it is that God, in fact, does not share his glory with others. And what the consequences are to those that come to those who try to compete for that glory. And thirdly and finally, we'll consider together God's jealousy and how it should impact our lives as Christians. So first of all, let's consider this preliminary consideration and how it is that God identifies himself by name as a jealous God. In Exodus 34.14, After promising to accomplish great things amidst the nation of Israel, the Lord then said this, You shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Now, pause there for a moment, and consider for a moment the profundity of the idea of God giving himself any name, a name at all. When you're a singularity and there are no other persons beside you as God is a singularity, having a name is not necessary. We're all human beings and we all have names and we all have identities and we have to have that because there are, there are many of us. But there aren't many gods. There's just one God. He doesn't require a name. So it is when Moses asked, What shall I say is your name? When he goes to, when he was going to go to the nation of Israel, the Lord said, I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. And what does that mean? When he says, I am, he's saying, I am the one who is. I have self-existence. Unlike any other creature, I'm not a created being. I am the one who gives life. I am the source of life. I am self-existing, self-authoritative. There are so many things that come and flow through that name, that identity, that are helpful to us to think about the very nature of God. I am who I am, God says. So when he says that his name is jealous, what does that tell us? What do we learn? What is the pedagogy that comes and flows from that identity? Well the pedagogy is this we're not to worship any other god the worship and the glory that is due to god is not to be given to any one or anything else and god is zealous even jealous over this matter and i've just brought in two words intentionally i've used the word zeal alongside of the word jealous for this purpose. The word in the Hebrew that is used in Exodus 34, 14, which is translated as jealous, is the Hebrew word kana, used 87 times in the Old Testament. It is sometimes translated as zeal. In fact, if you were to go through the now, I don't know how many English translations we have now, but if you were to go through and compare all of the occurrences in which this word kana appears as either jealous or zealous, you'll see that translators kind of go from one to the other there's a relationship actually between those english words the theological dictionary of the New, of the old testament reminds us that a helpful way to think of jealousy is to think of the word zeal zeal as the original sense from which the the from which derive the notions zeal for another's property which translates as envy, or zeal for one's own property, which translates into the idea of jealousy. Something that is mine, that I should have and I should make use of, there's something very natural about being jealous over that that thing or or having a bond or a relationship with someone who is bound to you, like my wife. Um, I'm jealous over her in the sense that she is bound to me. She is my bride and mine alone. And this is where we could have a godly sense of jealousy. We'll talk more about that later. But we can think of God's jealousy in these terms, of the idea of him being zealous over that which is his. The Oxford English Dictionary defines the word zeal as denoting ardent feeling or fervor even boiling passion, taking the form of love, wrath, jealousy, or righteous indignation. And this is why the words zeal and jealousy can be used to some degree interchangeably. In fact, the Greek word zealos from which we get the translation of either jealous or zealous, kind of sounds like you're almost saying the same thing. Again, there's a relationship between these terms. And even Young's literal translation translates Exodus thirty four fourteen in this way: For you, you, for you do not, uh, for ye de, do not bow yourselves. I told you I was tired. I knew, I knew this was going to happen. For ye do not bow yourselves to another god. For Jehovah, whose name is zealous, is a zealous God. What is this zeal? What is this jealousy? Well, it is God who is zealous or jealous over his glory, that which is his. God alone is worthy of worship and adoration, and he is zealous or jealous for that glory, meaning he will not share his glory with another. As the creator of all things... As the owner and title holder of the heavens and the earth and all living things, he deserves all glory, laud, and honor. And so we're repeatedly given the lesson in Isaiah 42 and verse 8. For example, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Again, in in Isaiah 48 and verse 11, my glory I will not give to another. God repeats this truth because we need to hear it again and again and again and again because the natural inclination of human flesh is to give glory to something else other than God. Even the Decalogue, as we're all familiar with, begins with this principle of the jealousy of God and his desire for, his, for devotion from his people. In Exodus chapter 20, and verse 1, it says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so we have the first commandment, You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment then says this, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under, under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. And here's the reason why. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. There you have the universal divide of humanity, those who... Love God and those who hate him. By the way, that means there's not a single individual who can claim indifference. You're either a lover of God or a hater of God. It's, that's it. God in his holy jealousy seeks the loyalty of his people and condemns all those who hate him and fail to bow the knee of submission to him. And he's so desires our loyalty, our devotion to him. That we see this language in Song of Solomon as reflective of the very love that God seeks. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. God redeems his people, not just so that we would be his possession in some sort of an abstraction of thought, but that we would be his people in terms of our devotion and loyalty to him. And this is why we repeatedly see in the Old Testament, the Lord is presented as Israel's husband, whereby the nation's spiritual infidelities are counted not as mere minor infractions, but as, I, as adultery. In other words, it's always personal with God. Sin is always a personal offense against him. And I confess to you, I, I continue to learn that principle. We all are learning that principle. In Ezekiel 16 and verse 38, God promises out of his jealousy judgment against those who remain in rebellion against him. The Lord says, thus I will judge you like women who committed adultery or shed blood are judged. And I shall bring on you the blood of wrath and cana. Jealousy. By the way, this gets us to the very important and foundational subject of God's monarchial right and authority over everything. We here in America, um, as we go to the voting booth and select our leaders, the concept of monarchy and monarchial authority and rule is very alien to our thinking This is why we don't get our cues of truth from politics or our experiences in this life. We have to understand the reality of things. God is king and he owns absolutely everything, has all authority and dominion over everything. And to the extent that we don't understand this, it becomes problematic You know, we often talk about property rights as I'm preparing to do something with our home in North Carolina. I don't know. If things don't work out, I might just give it away. But uh, we're either going to rent or sell it or do something with it. I still have to prepare it to do something with it. But in meeting with the realtor and talking about our rights, our legal rights, and what we can can or can't do and all these things, it, it just gave me a moment of meditation in the middle of the conversation of realizing that I can talk about property rights and my ownership over this house, but at the end of the day, I only own this home in a temporal sense. It's going to be somebody else's eventually. Our sense of owning anything has to be tempered with the understanding that as mere mortals who have a beginning and end in this world, our possessions will become the possessions of others eventually. But God who lives forever, always has been, and ever will be, he possesses everything always, and it never ends. How's that for monarchical rule and authority? We don't even understand it, because we have such a limited capacity to comprehend things, but God owns all things and ever will own all things. Therefore, his jealousy for his glory stems from our understanding of this principle. Psalm 95 For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. It's like the psalmist is going around, hey, let's take a a review of planet Earth and everything that God has made. He owns that, he owns that, he owns everything. And so he says, the sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Every molecule, every star, every, every nebula in the heavens, he owns it all. And it was all made for his glory. And so we're told by the psalmist in Psalm 19 and verse 1 the heavens are telling of the glory of God that's why they're there and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands brethren I don't know how clear the skies are here at the beach I fear that you might not have the clearest skies because of the the sea but uh Look in the heavens as often as you can and behold not the stars, as we're told in Isaiah, but behold the one who made them. That's why they're there. It's all there for his glory. This celestial sermon that God has made is there for a purpose. Paul tells us that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. My background is in science, um, and I'm amazed at all of these so-called scientists who will tell us that, well, the universe now, the current theory is, is that based upon string theory that uh, the present heavens and the earth just came about by means of a self-generating ex- pre-existing system of energetic fields that just collided and suddenly there was the creation of matter and and then there was a big bang and blah, 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 blah. And so you have to ask the question, where do those pre-existing expressions of energy, energetic fields exist? How do they come into existence? Well, you you don't have to answer that question. It's it's kind of like saying, well, human life came here from aliens from another planet. But as soon as you say that, you don't have to answer the question where the aliens came from. You just pass the buck, kick the, da- the can down the street, and you never have to answer these difficult questions. Now, all these things came into existence not out of nothing. The idea of something coming into existence out of nothing is a violation of the of the principles of thermodynamics, that's science. Real science would say, no, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a meaningful statement. But men choose to, li- to believe in alternative views because they refuse to bow the knee to the one who made all of this for his glory. God who has universal property rights over the created universe is a jealous God. He deserves glory for all that he is and all that he does. For the child of God, this is our joy to give him glory. In other words, we have been redeemed in such a way that now it is our privilege and our joy to give glory to him. But to the lost... To those who refuse to bow the knee to the Almighty, they refuse to give him glory. And a day is coming when his jealousy and wrath will be poured out upon them. And this is why, brethren, this is why we need to be urgent and faithful in the matter of telling others about the fact that God will be exalted among the nations. The question is, How will you exalt him? Will you exalt him? Will you give him glory by means of your judgment and eternal doom? Or will you do so as a willing, joyful servant of God? But mark this, he will be exalted. That's his promise. Secondly, something that we ought to consider is that Scripture repeatedly teaches us that God has demonstrated His jealousy throughout history. Those who refuse to bow the knee to the Creator have tasted the judgment of God. And those who have sought to compete with His glory have tasted again His wrath. Perhaps one of the more prominent examples in the New Testament is the case of Herod Agrippa. Remember when he was addressing the people in Jerusalem, And in response to his address, the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not, this is what the scripture says, he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. Imagine if that happened every time that any man or any woman receive praise and glory unto themselves, we'd all, you know, it'd be the deluge all over again. We'd all be dead. But God exhibits his wrath in history in order to give us a warning. This is how he views those who compete with his glory. He won't tolerate it. And this temporal judgment is simply a preview of of the eternal judgment to come. There are many more examples of God's judgment being poured out against those who openly competed with God's glory. Perhaps one of the most prominent of them all is the case of Lucifer, whose judgment by God is described as lightning. Jesus said when Satan fell, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Why? Because Lucifer exalted himself and compared himself to the Most High. I agree with those who see Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 as being descriptions of Satan's rebellion, Lucifer's rebellion, even as he was speaking to the kings of of Babylon and Tyre. But in Ezekiel chapter 28, we see this description. It says, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. And in Isaiah 14, the Lord again rebuking Lucifer said, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. to that the Lord's judgment was swift and Lucifer like lightning fell he and all the angels who joined in the rebellion against God you know there's a lot we don't know about that there are just a few things that we know but one thing we do know is is that God will not share his glory with another and he is jealous over his glory Lucifer and all the angels were created and designed to be the messengers of God in His glory. And those that fulfill that purpose are fulfilling the very design of God. By the way, just for the record, um, uh, just uh, I know that uh, sometimes my name might be confusing to people. My name is not Mike, it's Michael. Uh, I don't know what the word, uh, what the name Mike means, but I do know that Michael is a Hebrew name, and it's meaningful by virtue of the fact that it, it's a question. Mikael in the Hebrew, means "Who is like God?" And that question is repeatedly raised in the Old Testament and New Testament. And you know what the answer is: Who's like God? The answer is nobody. Oh, but I'm close to it. No, you're not. The reason why I love my name is that God, by his sovereignty, gave it to me through parents who didn't know Christ. But I use that to witness to people. If I meet a Michael, I'll say, hey, do you know what your name means? Immediately, I'm sharing with them the fact that God is God and we are not, no matter what we think of ourselves. And that he is jealous for his glory. So the angels are created in order to fulfill their divine purpose. They were created in order to fulfill this priority of the worship of God, the glory of God. But having mentioned Lucifer in his fall, remember, all those who stand in opposition to God's glory, in opposition to his will, throughout history, God has demonstrated through temporal judgments The fact that he is jealous for his glory. In the book of Jude, Jude launches into this remarkable description, a threefold description of God's judgment against those who would compete for his glory and who deride his name and his will. And if you have your copies of the scriptures, just briefly look with me at Jude chapter, uh, Jude 5, rather verses 5 through 7. Having mentioned the fact that there were those who had entered into the midst of the church who were turning the grace of God into licentiousness and were denying our only Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, he then went on to describe how God deals with rebels in his universe. So he says this, beginning in verse 5, he says, Now I desire to remind you though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example of undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. What Jude describes here, and this is key, if you follow the language and follow the primary verbs in these verses, the focus here is not on unbelieving Israelites. It's not on rebellious angels. And it's not the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. The focus here is on what God does to individuals like these. Because the Lord, and here's the primary verse, destroyed those who did not believe. And the Lord keeps fallen angels in eternal bonds for the judgment of the great day. Sodom and Gomorrah, their judgment is exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Keep that in mind. Why do we open up our scriptures and read about the destruction of the rebels in Israel who did not bow the knee to God? Why are we reading in Scripture about how they were destroyed so that we would know and understand that God is jealous for his glory? Why do we read in Scripture about how it is that God condemned the angels, the fallen angels who rebelled against him is so that we would know that God is jealous for his glory. And why, did, why do we read in Scripture the warnings about what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Because again, God is jealous for his glory and those who deride His name and deride His commandments, they will face the consequences. Jude says that they are exhibited. Exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. That word exhibited means literally to settle a legal contest. It bears the idea of producing forensic evidence in such a way that you settle a legal dispute. Remember the program Columbo? Does does anybody? Are there some of you too young to know about Columbo? Every program was almost the same. They just had different actors and different storylines, but it was kind of the same thing. You had a crime, and then you had Columbo marching around with a cigar and mumbling things, and then finally you got to the end of it, and finally he came up with the forensic evidence that revealed everything, and then suddenly the legal dispute or the legal question was finally settled. There's the evidence. Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment, the wrath that God poured out upon them. This is evidence that we need to look at and study and examine so that we would know that God does not wink at sin. That those who live in rebellion against him in his universe, and it is his universe, they'll pay the consequences. lesson of Jude 7 I think is key. Those in Israel who rebelled against God the root of their problem was their own sin, their own rebellion their own unbelief. For Lucifer and the angels who fell with him pride and a spirit of self-exaltation. Sodom and Gomorrah Hedonism. That's all that you need to know about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's about a bunch of people living for themselves. And it manifested itself in both in terms of their selfishness and in terms of their sexual immorality. From these examples, we learn a great deal about the nature of God. He doesn't wink at sin. His beneficent love and compassion does not mean that he will compromise his justice and holiness. His patience and mercy is great, but the day is coming when he will no longer exercise his patience towards mankind. And then comes judgment. And The principle that we learned in Psalm 46, though the nations make make an uproar against God, and though the kingdoms tottered, as the psalmist says, the Lord made the promise that he will be exalted in the earth. It's going to happen. He will be glorified. Zephaniah 3.8 says this, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to the prey, indeed my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger for the for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my kana zeal it's coming because god is a jealous god and his name is jealous he will be glorified one way or the other Thirdly and finally, as a concluding point, we ought to ask the question, how does the subject of the jealousy of God impact our lives as Christians? How how should we live in view of this remarkable truth? I'm going to offer just a few points, summary points here at the end. First of all, might I suggest to you that it ought to stir within our hearts a heart, a greater heart of thankfulness. (laughs) Because only a child of God can willingly, joyfully, and honestly confess that God is worthy of all glory, laud, and honor. Human flesh cannot do this. There's not a single person in this room who can contradict that point. None of us understand Even as redeemed people, we're learning about how glorious God is. I think even in heaven, we'll continue to learn about how worthy God is. You read the book of Revelation. What is the constant theme in all of the songs that are sung? It's about the worthiness of God to be glorified. Human flesh loves to exalt self. It's the way we are in our sinful nature. But only divine grace can produce this confession that came from John the Baptist when he said, of Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. Let him be exalted. Let him be glorified. Not me, him. We're incapable of such a confession by nature, but by divine grace. This is now our confession. Let us give thanks to God that this is in fact now our confession. In Romans chapter 1 having already alluded to that chapter Paul also says for even though they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. For an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Twice Paul uses the word exchanged. Exchanged. It simply means trading one thing for another. And here we have a a description of fallen, sinful human beings taking the truth of God, the glory of God, and exchanging it for that which is a lie and for the worship of the creature. Can you imagine if I gave you a, a, a whole bunch of money, bars of gold and silver and everything, and you took your riches and you went to some place where they were selling trash, plenty of analogies in that. I think of Vanity Fair and Pilgrim's Progress. But you take all your riches and you just you just give it all away so you can have all the contents that are in the, the trash cans. And you exchange the one for the other. That's exactly what Paul is saying. They're saying that, listen, you have the access to these riches of the glory of God, and instead of accepting that and receiving that, they trade it all in for that which is a trash heap. By the way, this is the defi- definition of insanity. Ecclesiastes 9 3. Read it later. That's what all men are. We're all crazy in that sense. We don't understand the riches of God. Secondly, here's a second consideration and implication of this truth the truth of the jealousy of God should give us greater vigilance for the gospel. As we've already indicated, God will be exalted. The day of his judgment is coming. He will be glorified. That's a promise that he has given. How men and women are used to that end is the question. You know, we live in a worldly culture which seeks not the glory of God, but the glory of self. Young people oftentimes, and not just young people, Young and old, spend time on the Internet. Many people spend an inordinate amount of time looking for attention and praise from others. Many young people who seek that attention and don't get it oftentimes sink into a depression and some some commit suicide. We read about this in the news from time to time. The constant craving for self-praise and glory should be seen for what it is. It is a clear indication of humanity's corruption, depravity, and need for Christ. So when we see others carrying on in this manner, and it's all around us, number one, we should never be prideful, imagining that somehow we're any different. We're all cut out of the same fallen fabric. Paul says, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. This is the universal reality of humanity. Only God can snatch us out of that pit. So in speaking to others, we must remind them that God will be glorified. And it's our prayer that they would, through faith in Christ, give him glory as a child of God rather than as an object of wrath. And the third implication regarding this truth, regarding the jealousy of God for his glory, is this. This priority of glorifying God when rightly secured will increase our joy. It will increase our joy as believers. And if you want to hear more about that, come and join us next Lord's Day, because that will be the focus of our study. There are many implications to this truth. Soli Deo Gloria is not just a nice little phrase. It is foundational everything he will be exalted and may we continue to be engaged in this process of joyfully exalting his name and giving him glory because again he is worthy precious heavenly father We are only introducing this subject, and we plead with you for further grace to learn more, not so that we would just merely have theology in our minds, but so that such truths would transform our lives, our hearts, our souls, every aspect of our being. Father, our Savior's prayer that, you, that he would be glorified, that you would be glorified, is precious. Just as all the other petitions that he made in John 17. But the principal petition that he offered up is so key. It is so foundational. And so we confess it this morning. You are worthy of glory. Grant us grace to grow in this truth. To the end that we would have greater joy in this matter of giving you glory. We ask it in Jesus' precious and holy name.